night, Diane. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday to you, too. How you doing? I'm good today. Good, good. It's the sun. I know it's probably warmer there. I think it's like 40 degrees here. So Yeah, it's the, the sun's out. Okay, great. Yeah, the sun's out here, too. It's, I think it's about 40 degrees, so it's better than last year. Hi, John. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. John, this is my cousin, Maria, Maria Richardson, and okay. this is John Bland. Um, so, John and Maria, we hopefully have a great conversation this evening. Okay, I'm looking forward to it. Hi, John. Hi, Maria. Well, I know you're in Florida, so you probably, you're above 40 degrees, I hope. Uh, it's about 70-ish. Oh, wow. So, we're jealous. That's <laughs> nice. <laughs> It's short pants weather here. Yes. Well, you can you you can wear short pants here, but you might get your feelings and your knees might say, "What are you doing?" <laughs> yeah, I think I'll stay where I am. Uh, I think you should. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, John, uh, thank you for being on the call um, with us. Um, I don't know which one is this for us, like the twentieth Marie podcast we've done. It's episode 19. We're almost at 20. Oh, yeah. So episode 19. So um, my cousin and I would call each other periodically and talk. And so one day we came up, you know, we dropped knowledge on each other. Right. So we said, why don't we uh, start uh, this podcast and drop knowledge? So when um, somewhere in the cyberspace, our knowledge would be out there and when we we're gone, it would still be out there for somebody to gain some knowledge that we think that we have that we drop. Right. So what? So when I heard you on our reunion of our old church in Columbia speak, and I was like, wow, that's what you know. Like I kind of know a little bit more about myself just listening to you speak. So hmm. uh, John, could you tell me? Um, like I think you're from Virginia too, aren't you? Uh, no, I was born in in North Carolina. Oh, North Carolina. Okay, yeah. could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, um, I remember you're from Danville, Virginia, right? Exactly. Well, I live between uh, Roxborough and South Boston, Virginia. Oh, close. You're close. Right okay. off of 501. Right, you're close. Yeah, so we sold uh, my grandfather because I was on his on the farm that he uh, operated. We sold tobacco. At Danville, just about mm -hmm. every year. Wow. I was born in Baltimore and moved to North Carolina in August of 1939, uh, just a short time before I was 10. And uh, my grandfather was a sharecropper, and the mm -hmm. farm that he operated uh, raised a lot of tobacco, a lot of corn, and a lot of wheat. And so we went to South Boston. Uh, to Danville uh, once in a while to Durham, but most often to Roxborough to sell out uh, cured tobacco. But anyway, I was born in Baltimore in 1929. And uh, my mother was born in Blackstone, Virginia, near Petersburg. And her father uh, was a landowner. Uh, he, his father was born in slavery 
and uh, but they came as out of the reconstruction uh, uh, with land uh, that belonged to them, but they were peanut farmers. My mother's mother died when she was in the third grade, and because she was the oldest girl, she had to stay home. So she only had achieved a third grade education. But Christmas of my fourth birthday, my mother decided to teach me how to read. Uh, Santa Claus bought me a box of blocks that had the alphabet on them and numbers. So before I was five years old, I could read. So she spent that quality of time with me. And uh, so I was in kindergarten reading at the third grade level. And in those days, all the schools were segregated. So the kindergarten teacher was just flat out astonished that here's a little boy in the kindergarten reading and writing at the third and fourth grade level. And she said to my mother once that she couldn't figure out why that happened. And my mother, being a very shy woman, she never told her that she was the cause of my being able to read. <laughs> mm -hmm. But in any event, what happened was uh, my father was a steel mill worker and he allowed his alcohol and his job get in the way of his marriage. And he wound up raising, there were five of us. I'm the oldest of five. I have three brothers and the youngest was a girl. So my mother took the daughter and raised her daughter. And my father had raised the four boys. And we left Baltimore and went back to live with his father in North Carolina. Uh, I finished high school there in Roxborough uh, at age 17. And made it clear to my grandfather that farming was not my interest. And I moved back to Baltimore, worked for a year, and then enlisted in the military and was stationed in Hawaii during the Korean War mm. um, shortly after Thanksgiving in 1948. And I went back stateside in April of 1952. And I was one of the first black flight attendants in the Air Force in the summer of 1949. I was trained by senior uh, flight attendants with American Airlines who was wow. stationed in uh, uh, Boulder, Colorado. And we were flying from Hawaii to uh, the west coast of the US throughout all of most of the islands in the Pacific into Japan. So when the Korean War started, we were transferring a lot of military personnel, US personnel, Australian personnel, New Zealand personnel, Canadian personnel to Japan. Because if you remember, the Korean War was not considered a war. It was the United Nations police action. So a lot of UN personnel flew on the airplanes that I was a flight attendant on. Mm 
and we crossed the international date line. And it was the custom that the flight attendant had to fill out the international date line forms because the U.S. gave every person who's a passenger on an airplane across the date line uh, a, a form as a trophy. Because <laughs> if you could leave uh, Honolulu on Wednesday, cross the international date line, and fly to Tokyo, it would be Saturday, I mean, Thursday, depending on what time. It could be Friday, because we fly to Guam or Okinawa and spend the night there, and then go on into Japan. So I remember one year, I think it was in uh, Christmas of 51, I was in Tokyo, celebrated Christmas in Tokyo, flew back, came back across the International Dateline, and spent Christmas in Hawaii, my second Christmas. <laughs> so my friends, and they all laughed at it. Man, you're always full of it. <laughs> yeah. And I can remember the Dateline is between here and Tokyo. Oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> anyway, I came back stateside, uh, stationed up in uh, near Seattle, Washington, got discharged, and uh, banged on the VA and got a VA stipend. Uh, went to Morgan for four years under the VA. Was discharged in July and with a lot of praying and messing with the VA, uh, I was able to be covered in less than 90 days. And that's almost a miracle all by itself. The VA rarely does things that quickly. But anyway, uh, September I started, 52, graduated in June of 56 as a political science major. The most outstanding thing that occurred, well, there were a couple during during my time there. Uh, because I was interested in uh, the Bible, both as a spiritual document, but also as a spiritual document. And the reason that I understood it as a spiritual document, uh, because I love to read, I read a lot about uh, European uh, uh, background and history. So the whole question about what Europeans believed in, uh, I had read as a little kid. So I knew a lot about Norse mythology, uh, Roman mythology, and Greek mythology. Uh, also, during that time in the 30s, just because I loved to read, I was also reading science fiction. And so I read a lot of mythology, uh, both from a historical point of view, as well as from a spiritual point of view. And uh, by the time I was 12, my grandfather, who was also the superintendent of the Baptist church that my father and his whole family attended, uh, was a, a church that was called a circuit rider church because of the uh, the, the poverty and a variety of other things. 
we had a pastor who was only there once a month. And the rest of the Sundays was devoted to a very intense training in Sunday school. So I was biblically literate by the time I was 12 years old. As a matter of fact, the a young adult Sunday school class, the man got sick. And my grandfather told me to take over and teach his class. So I was between 12 and 13 when I started teaching. And I was a little bit stymied once because we were going around and getting people to read the, the lesson. And two Sundays in a row, this man, who's in his late 30s, I would say, passed. And I couldn't figure out why he didn't want to read the Bible. So I told my grandfather about it. And he said, well, what did you say? I said, well, I didn't say anything. But I was trying to figure out, was it me? Was the reason for why he couldn't read or wouldn't read? It never dawned on me that an adult would not be able to read. And my grandfather said, did, did anybody else uh, act up in the class? I said, no, sir. He said, well, he passed it on because he can't read. I said, well, why is he in church if he can't read? <laughs> it just didn't dawn on me uh, in 1942, 43, that a person, black, white, purple, didn't matter, was adult, grown up, and could not read. But anyway, uh, I was telling the young people, not the young, the, uh, the young adults in the class that I had tried to figure out a concept. And we were studying in the New Testament. And I said, the concept was edifying the saints. And everybody looked at each other and they said, I don't know. I said, well, look here in, in one of the Gospels by uh, the Apostle Paul. And he said that the elders are responsible for the edifying of the saints. I don't know what that means. So, so we went to Corinthians. I said, well, here it is. And everybody read it. And they looked at me like, I don't know. I said, well, I'll ask my grandfather. So I did. And that has been the, the concept that the Holy Spirit has placed on me. And I've been a teacher ever since. Mm -hmm. uh, Diane will tell you that, that I was a Sunday school teacher and a Bible teacher in our church. And a lot of people became uh, very much involved in becoming biblically literate in our church. But anyway, to make a long story short, my wife and I, when we graduated from Oregon, moved to California. Because when I was in the military, I spent a lot of time flying between Hawaii and, and the West Coast, particularly uh, San Francisco, in the Sacramento area. And I'd gone down to Los Angeles once or twice. And I liked the area. And so we graduated, packed all our stuff up, and drove to California. And in 1956, the Eisenhower administration was building the interstate highways. Mm -hmm. And we drove across from Maryland, from Baltimore, Maryland, to Los Angeles, on and off of the interstate highways that the Eisenhower administration was putting in. 
And I got to know something that I had never heard about before that. During the course of our travel, you'd run to the end of a concrete superhighway and get off and the sign would say, frontage roads turn at, I said, what's a frontage road? <laughs> All of the highways along that were parallel to uh, the interstate were listed as frontage roads. So you would drive on a two lane, one lane going, one lane coming after you've been on the interstate for an hour and a half or three hours. Very, very disconcerting. <laughs> but anyway, we got to California. Um, all three of our daughters were born uh, in Los Angeles County. And uh, I was working in a position that required me to get a doctorate in order to become a member of the faculty and get into a tenured track. And in the course of trying to do that, I got a position back in Maryland at the University of Maryland a School of Social Work and Community Planning as an associate professor and stayed there until we moved from Maryland down here in, in 2003. Uh, during the course of my life, I was rarely sick. I retired from uh, being the director of the Alcoholism Control Administration for the state of Maryland in 1989. And less than a year later, I was diagnosed with having a hypertension, a high blood pressure, asthma, and the precursor to COPD, congestive obstructive uh, pulmonary disease. Uh, since that time, I've had two bouts with cancer, uh, prostate cancer uh, in Maryland, uh, too old for surgery. So I had to go on an extended period of chemotherapy. And, um, 60 plus uh, radioactive seeds were implanted and uh, another bout of treatment. And uh, so I've been uh, cancer survivor since uh, 2001. In 2010, I had another bout of cancer colon cancer, uh, almost a golf ball sized tumor removed and a little more than 12 inches of, of intestine. And I've been uh, cancer free since uh, June of 2010. Uh, because of that, one other thing, I was always aware that in order to make sense for, for me, uh, that I was, able, I was required by that equation to rely on the Holy Spirit. Even as a young person, uh, I was traumatized by the breakup of my mother and father and our family in 1939 and 
and experienced an epiphany where spiritually I was informed as a nine-year-old to not worry that you will overcome this, you will get out of it. And so I had that as a background and all of the, the condition that I just listed, none of them did I experience any pain. And the doctor said, uh, Mr. Bland, we don't understand that you came out of ether at an earlier period for a person your age. And uh, you have a reaction to the pain medicine. And I said, yes, I was seven years old and I had a high atal hernia bilaterally. In other words, I mean, the repair for my hernia at seven years old was surgically done on both sides of my groin. And I was not able to walk because in those days, post-operative, you were in a cast from your waist down to just below your knees. And they told me when I came out of the surgery that it would be very, very itchy, but you can't access it because you have to stay in the cast for 30 to 40 days. So one of the nurses <laughs> took pity on me and gave me a, a tongue depressor. In those days, they were about almost 12 inches long. And I could use the tongue depressor to at least, you couldn't scratch it because they, they just, the, the uh, stitches would come out. Well, after about 10 days in a cast, your body odor is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so the nurse would take a vinegar stick and give me uh, a forbidden wash, and I would use it to scratch. <laughs> anyway, mm -hmm. when I came out of the surgery, they do a puncture uh, about six inches away from the surgical site in order to drain the blood out, and it comes out in a ball uh, that looks like... Uh, uh, how do I put it? Anybody ever baste a turkey and you take the fluid up, the end of it's got a ball on the end? Mm -hmm. Yeah. About that size. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it was removed wow. every day because it would fill up with blood. Now, the problem I had was that I didn't really need the pain medicine. They gave it to me anyway. And it made me crazy. I was literally... Mm -hmm. psychotic <laughs> out of my head mm -hmm. and they said oh you're reacting to it they took me off and gave me another one it was worse the clock in my room uh, looked like a dolly clock the bed felt like a boat that was rocking back and forth they took me off of that said okay Mr. Blaine all we got left is Tylenol I said give it to me and so what I'm saying is that for some curious reason uh, I have a high pain quotient. But what it did, though, was to facilitate the gift of, of being sensitive to the, to the pain of others. Mm. So the Holy Spirit has helped me 
to not only exercise the gift, the spiritual gift of teaching, but also to be sensitive to others. My training, my professional training is as a clinical professional social worker. Uh, I got my master's in social work, psychiatric social work in uh, June of 1960. And in June of 19, February 1962, I started my career as a clinical social worker in a psychiatric VA hospital, uh, not too far from where I lived in California. So I've been a clinician, psychotherapist all of my life and spiritually a teacher. And I have run men's groups since I started working, uh, became a member of a United Methodist Church uh, in Southern California in the fall of 1960. And so I've been, and until we moved down in Cal- to Florida, was a United Methodist until we moved and then came down here. I'm sorry, Martin Luther King Community Church. And then we moved here, we went back to the Methodist Church. But the point I wanted to make and why I'm telling you is that I've always been sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit with the first century church. Mm. What we tried to do with Martin Luther King was to truly make it a community-based church. Now, why was that important for me? Well, the third strain in my training by the Holy Spirit was that I became somewhat of an expert in race relations and diversity training. As a Protestant, I was assigned, asked by Associated Catholic Charities in Baltimore, Maryland, to come on as a member of their board, the first black man to become a member of the Board of Catholic Charities as a Protestant. Worked directly with Cardinal uh, Lawrence Sheehan for three and a half years. Before that, I had a contract with North American Rockwell, and they were building the uh, Atlas rocket that was used in that and by NASA. They had a contract with the Department of Defense, and their Human Relations Department didn't have a clue as to how to meet the affirmative action requirement. And in order to get that contract from DOD, they had to have a significant commitment, not at the lower level or the the middle level, but at the executive office level. So somebody got my name and they sent me uh, an application wanting to know if I'd be interested. And if so, would I be willing to come in and meet with their board and uh, go through a review process? And I said, sure, and I did. And to make a long story short, I spent about two and a, half, a month and a half with the board laying out how they would meet the federal requirements at that time. And I believe this was in 19... 19- 
either 60, late 66 or early 67. And I said, well, the commitment that you have to, you got to sign my contract. I want to make sure of that. But the commitment, the board or the CEO's designee would have to say that they are revising their human relations department and bringing on an affirmative action apparatus that meets the federal guidelines. And they did. I never had to meet because I chose not to with anybody below those who reported to the chief executive officer of North American Rockwell, a major 500, uh, four or 500 uh, organization. And I did quite a bit of that along with the chief of social services for the community mental health center that I was working with at that time. I left the VA in September of 1966 and helped open one of the first John F. Kennedy uh, oriented community mental health centers uh, in California. And California was one of the first states to commit fully to implementing the Kennedy administration Community Mental Health Act. And, and I've been involved in stuff similar to that. I had a joint appointment at the University of Maryland, associate professor in the School of Social Work and Community Planning, and a visiting professor with the School of Nursing which is right across the street off of uh, Pratt Street in, in Baltimore to teach a course on race relations and adversity training. And then the men that I work with at Martin Luther King became the beneficiaries of my knowledge in race relations and the responsibility of the elders in the Judeo-Christian uh, mindset. I had a valve, a cardiac valve replaced, the aortic valve, and that's why I'm in assistant living. The replacement was done this week, two years ago. And at that time, uh, if the surgery was successful, I was given an 80 to 85% chance if it was marginal less than 30. And I've been here at age 80 and 91. I was taken off of high blood pressure medicine the first time since I believe March of 1991. And I've been off of diabetes, diabetic medicine for going on two years. I started gaining weight. So I was uh, packing a half as compound male cigarette smoke uh, from the year that I enlisted in the military until Thanksgiving of 1963. In 1963, I was wearing a, a men's size 42 suit 
1964, I ballooned up to a size 46. And I started losing weight consciously by the power of the Holy Spirit. I was weighing 252 pounds, wearing a portly, a size 50 portly. This morning, I weighed 155 pounds. Hmm. Right. So, John, you said that you got your master's. Did you get your doctorate also? To, yes, I got part my of doctorate. At university? Well, I was advanced to candidacy in uh, June of 1974. Uh, the thesis committee was all in favor and very much excited about my project. And uh, uh, the project was to de develop a treatment program principally for women who had substance abuse problems associated with alcohol and other drugs. The cohort had to be over age 55. The independent uh, was to bring them, get them out of the criminal justice system and specifically designed to bring them into treatment. Now, why is that a problem? Well, in this culture, law enforcement personnel, local police, uh, highway patrolmen, sheriff officers don't like to write a ticket or put in jail a grandmother or some woman, female, over age 55 who's driving, who has a DUI, a DWI. And what they didn't realize and what my doctoral dissertation was about was to get these ladies into treatment, get the widows into treatment, get the widowers into treatment, because one statistic that was incorporated was that many of these individuals weren't really having problems by the alcohol by itself. But they were middle class, and many of them were not only had the alcohol, but they were getting medication for a variety of illnesses and problems. A glass, a half a glass of Merlot wine, and some of the pills that we take, high blood pressure, etc., exacerbates dizziness, disorientation etc. So the parallel in that was that if you didn't prevent that, they would fall, break a hip, etc. And many of them would never tell anybody. And many of them did not go through a clinical design detox because generally if they did and the team were treated well, trained well, they would find out and, you know, bring about some intervention. Anyway, to make a long story short, completed all the course, coursework. Everybody was in agreement because since it was an epidemiologic study, I had to meet the federal requirements. And if you had a epidemiologic study and you did the, the work, 
and your results were less than 10 for 1,000. 10% of your sample show, had to show that it met the requirements. I hired John Hopkins School of Public Health to do my study, the epidemiologic study. And it came out 12 uh, for females and 13% for females. I had the support of the National Institute on Aging and the support on my parent organization, the National Institute on Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse. I'm the director now of the Maryland Department of Mental Health, Mental Hygiene, I'm sorry. Alcoholism Control Administration. President Nixon resigned. President Ford refused to fund any of President Nixon's commitments. So in 1975, when I was due to start the trials, control group and blind study for four other treatment centers around the state of Maryland. President Ford said no, and it was defunded. Well, I had a wife and three children, and they'd all gotten in the habit of eating three meals a day and living in a safe <laughs> environment. <laughs> so I was called an all but uh, dissertation. However, and you aren't going to believe the coincidence, the wife of President Gerald Ford's name was Betty Ford. Mm -hmm. Betty Ford had a history. Her injury when she was a young woman, off and on using pain medicine. And by the time she got to uh, middle class, middle age, not middle class, middle age, because she's upper class. She was sipping on Merlot, etc., and having a lot of falls. You guys aren't old enough to remember that Gerald Ford was walking up the ramp to an airplane or coming off the ramp mm -hmm. and fell down. And fell. Well, mm -hmm. nobody knew that his wife had done that a hundred times or more. She developed a treatment wow. facility the Betty Ford Treatment Center in Southern California. And it's called the Betty Ford Addiction Rehab Rehabilitation Center. The patients that they treat are the same patients that I would have been treating. Wow. That, that center was open in 1975. <clears throat> Mm -hmm. uh, so, John, you know, you mentioned your wife. Your wife was uh, a friend of mine, just like you are. And I tell people this story all the time about your wife, that um, she must have been in her mid-40s or 40s, or not 50 yet, and I was mid-20s. And um, she asked me to come to your house and take her to Bible study, not yes. Bible study, choir practice right. like, on Wednesday nights. And so, so I told... Um, 
So she said that the reason she needed me to pick her up because she didn't see well at night, which I didn't understand because I was young. But now yes, I really understand. On, all of her life. And um, <laughs> <laughs> and so she right. she asked me to pick her up. But she start, she said to me one time that's always stuck me. She said, Diane, so how are you going to take care of your life? She said, first of all, how old are you? I said, I'm 25. She said, okay. So what do you plan to? How you plan to take care of yourself in your life? Which I didn't know what she was asking me. And she said, I'm asking you that because life is going to go by very quickly. And one day you're going to look up and it's going to be either Christmas or your birthday. And my birthday is March 7th, so it's not that far away. And she said, it's either going to be Christmas or your birthday. And Christmas was a few months ago. And she said, before you know it, you'll be 60 or 70 or 80 years old. And so what are you going to do about your life? And so... And I was like, what are you talking about in my mind? But now that, you know, I'll be 65 in a couple of weeks, and now you're saying that you're telling us about 1930 and 1956, 2056. That's how time, uh, you know, went for you, I'm sure, and went for, um, you know, your wife. But I want you to tell Marie and our listeners about how you met your wife and also the story you also talked about this, the vision before you even met her. Well, it's very interesting. Uh, she died in uh, the fall of uh, 2018. That year, that September, we had been married 64 years. Mm-hmm. We met each other the Tuesday after Labor Day of 1952 in the line to register for our freshman year at Morgan. We were literally in the line together and I was attracted to her and I praise the Lord, she was attracted to me. And we've been (laughs) friends since, we had been friends for 66 years. Now, in that time, I was, I graduated from the University of Southern California School of Social Work in 1960. Uh, Our first daughter was born in January of 1961. My wife was a graduate of the School of Social Work at the University of Southern California in 1970, 10 years. And our twins were born in January of 1966. So they were four years old when she graduated and they were two years old when she started. She started in 68, I graduated in 60. Now we celebrated (laughs) her graduation by a trip back to Hawaii and she couldn't believe it. She said, you stayed here for almost four years? I said, oh, yes, I'd have stayed longer if they'd let me. <laughs> <laughs> we had each other's backs from the moment we met each other until the moment she died. She was mm-hmm. in hospice care, not quite two weeks, suffering from Sjogren's disease. Uh, she had breast cancer. And, and her disease had trapped her 
because it really debilitated her immune system, almost destroyed it. And because of that, that fact, uh, she had no capacity uh, to fend for herself. And with the history of, of, uh, of the breast cancer, her body was just simply vulnerable. And, and I don't know if any of you are familiar with that disease, but it tends to be genetically mm -hmm. transmitted from mother to daughter. Uh, her, my wife's name was Ruth. Her mother had it. And there were eight or nine female, siblings, female siblings. All of them had it. So my mm. wife has it. And all my daughters have gone through uh, gene counseling. And so far, they've not shown any symptoms. And they both are at the tape at the age where if they had it, they should have shown some symptoms. You know, the other issue that uh, you're raising that I think may be helpful for the group is that the Bible doesn't talk about gender when it talks about the elders. And the Sunday school class that I'm teaching on Zoom now, uh, I have assigned a couple to do an analysis of the Old Testament to take a look at why the Bible doesn't really train us to be aware of the importance of the elders. They are mentioned a lot, but we aren't really trained uh, to look at the elders uh, as an extension, if you're looking at the Old Testament, there isn't a relationship spelled out between the elders and uh, uh, whoever is in charge of reading Exodus, for example. Then obviously you're talking about Moses. If you're reading Jeremiah, you're talking about the relationship between God, Jeremiah, and the elders. And how does the elders fit into that? Well, I guess in my arrogance, I don't mean to be, but I raise the question that you don't really get a picture of the elders until you get to the New Testament. And quite as it's kept, a lot of female elders were very active in the New Testament. But you have to be an astute Bible scholar to understand that. Because people have a problem with Paul and Paul's gender issues. But my interpretation of Paul is that it wasn't a gender issue. Because the women got Paul out of trouble a lot of times. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> my wife got me out of trouble a lot of times. <laughs> I mean, serious trouble. <laughs> Potentially really bad decision type trouble. Mm. But that's what partners are for. Amen. And if we don't accept that, then how do we really understand Jesus? You can't. Mm -hmm. The same thing as what besets this nation. 
we're still struggling with tribalism. We're still struggling with supremacy. Are you kidding me? What does supremacy, supremacy have to do with spiritual growth and development? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> well, I, I feel like that, um, first of all, I'm grateful, very grateful. Um, I feel like I've got a, a, a history lesson, uh, <laughs> a couple of life lessons. I mean, it feels like you've lived a, a lot in the time that you've been here on earth. You've had a lot of experiences. And the fact that you can remember years, dates is amazing. You know, um, it, I mean, I have a lot of questions. I took notes. They're scattered right now. Uh, but one of the things that uh, stood out to me is that you talked about you were really specific from the time you were nine and the breakup of your family. That's when you learned to uh, to rely on the Holy Spirit. Yeah, it's so very specific about relying on the Holy Spirit. That's right. Uh, so I wanted to hear a little bit more about that. Well, hang on just a second. Uh, I've got to take my medicine. Just a moment. Just a second. Okay. That was amazing. Wow. I know. I I, I mean, I have four pages of notes. Four pages. I mean, I want to know about reconstruction, getting land. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, just the, the, I mean, the years, the dates, the the travel. And then also, too, the fact that the, uh, the biblical literacy part, you know, like, that's what got, I think that made me kind of wake up doing our uh, Zoom, that they started a church intentionally Absolutely. to get black people yeah. biblically literate. And I said, okay, okay. So I said, that's what that's what that's all about. But Marie, you can react to your I'm question. Sorry, I'm sorry, I'm You know, back from taking this medicine. Okay. I did want to ask about this. You were really specific on relying on the Holy Spirit, not God, not Jesus, you know, not the Holy Spirit is what kind of was woven throughout this whole thing for me that was there. Well, actually, it it really started, uh, I believe, earlier, but I felt more comfortable because let me give you a picture. My my father was born in uh, October of 1905. He left uh, the same farm that I left at the same age that I did. He was 18. Came to Baltimore and started working at the Bethlehem Steel Company in, in Baltimore, uh, in Maryland, rather, at Sparrows Point. And because he grew up, even though his father was uh, a sharecropper, uh, my grandfather was a self-taught man. He sent all of his children. He had, he fathered uh, 11 children. Uh, two of his daughters died, were casualties in the Spanish uh, flu epidemic after World War I. Mm-hmm. My grandfather and other families, some of whom were were 
their own uh, were landowners sent their children because they could afford it to what was called the academy. At that time, there were no high schools for black children. Mm -hmm. The only schools that white folks provided in North Carolina at that time was through elementary school. And it was a one room uh, school. And it was K mm -hmm. elementary, what didn't even have kindergarten, first grade through what was comparable to the eighth grade. So it was elementary and secondary, no high school. The Methodist Church, last vestiges of the Reconstruction period, had established in Roxborough an academy that black children could go to. And all of my father, my father and his brothers and sisters attended that academy. So when he came to, to Maryland and did the apprenticeship in the blast furnace, he was selected as one of maybe five black men in that whole company to work in a position that black men were not allowed to work. <laughs> and that's because mm -hmm. he was educated and could follow the instructions of building and breaking down the linings of blast furnace. So during mm -hmm. the Depression, you heard me mention the, the 30s, when other black families in the same ghetto we're going to the WPA uh, shops for food, for clothing, and other kinds of uh, whatever to survive. My father, because he was making good money, as they put it. In 1934, my father bought a, a 1933 A model Ford. And white people were wondering, where did he get that car from? <laughs> Other families were walking past our steps with big bags of proceeds. Now, he wasn't the only one. There were other families in the, our neighborhood, in the ghetto, who worked at Sparrow's Point as well. Now, having said that, because where we live was in walking distance of Johns Hopkins Hospital. Because we chose not to allow nonsense and superstition to get in the way. We became familiar with the services that Johns Hopkins Hospital provided. Now, I don't know if most of you are aware, but the polio vaccination, polio epidemic was at its peak during the 30s. Johns Hopkins Hospital had a whole floor in the basement, two sides of the hall, hallway of iron lungs with human beings in them. I saw them because the clinic that my mother went to for prenatal and postnatal care, because she gave birth to five children between 1929, me and my sister, born in November of 1937. 
So we spent a lot of time. Out of the five, four of us were born at Hopkins. For some reason, my mother chose to have a uh, uh, to have her daughter born at home. And part of it had to do with the fact that the midwife that gave that she used was a very close friend of hers at church, at her church. Now, having said all of that, that means that I witness human suffering because most black folks didn't mm -hmm. believe for some reason that white folks didn't suffer. But there were no black people in a lung on either side of that corridor. And it was a huge uh, bay with all of those black, uh, all of those white folks in iron lungs during the polio epidemic. At the same time, during some of those winters, black people were dying from tuberculosis. And Hopkins was one of the responsible public health entities to deal with that. If a person was reported, a family member, is having active TB, the house was quarantined. A black wreath or a black uh, banner was placed on the door. You couldn't even sit on the steps. Anybody who went up that the step and the, the beat cop saw it would be placed on quarantine. For Baltimore and Baltimore County, there was only one sanitarium for all of those citizens for treatment of tuberculosis. Now, so all of these things were happening. When I was in the hospital for the surgery, the nurses would always say, little boy, my spiritual epiphany, what did the Holy Spirit greet me with? Little boy. So I knew it was, it was real. Mm -hmm. When that happened, my father had sold all of the furniture, everything. There was nothing in the house. There was one pillow and nothing in the refrigerator and in the icebox. He never refrigerated. Nothing in the basement, nothing. And he was waiting to get his last payment so that he could buy tickets for himself and his two sons to go to North Carolina on a trailway bus. Two days. And my brother, I was born in September, not the next year, he was born in January, the year after that. So he was not quite 16 months younger than me. So I had to take care of him and myself for almost 48 hours with nothing. So my father finally got it together and we had our first meal in the colored section of the Greyhound bus station. And I was reassured it'll be all right. And I've had that reassurance 
for 81 years since then. Amazing. Thank you, God. <laughs> wow. John, <laughs> I think you have blown my cousin and my mind this afternoon. So. Well, We've been, it's been a blessing. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I feel like what I'll probably do um, after I, I publish this, I'll go back and listen to it again because <laughs> there's a lot of things in here that, I mean, what it tells me is that what we probably think is so unique, like this pandemic what people are going through you 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 don't you've seen this That's before right. you've seen something yes. before right yeah when where i lived in north carolina we had a type five typhus and typhoid epidemics every summer and the public health nurses would come out to the baptist church or the methodist church or the ame church depending on the community and give the shots they kept you alive, but boy, it was some kind of painful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had to work every day. So, it, although it was painful, wow. <laughs> if you work on the farm, guess what? <laughs> That's incidental. You didn't, get... <laughs> no you, didn't get a, you get a sick day. You didn't get a sick day, huh? <laughs> That's right. Pay a Not PTO today. pay time off. Yes. <laughs> you know, if a Baptist family had to work on Sunday, you know it's serious. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, one of the things you talked about, and we'll, you know, that'll be my last question. Maybe we have another one. You talked about um, biblical literacy and uh, a lot. And you were biblically literate by the time you were 12. Um, and when I met you, I didn't know why that I was joining the church that was promoting biblical literacy for black folks. But why was that important well, for you? When you're sitting in church on Sundays and you look to your right and you look to your left, do you have, ask in your mind, does that person understand the sermon? I grew up where that question was common. For example, the tradition in the Baptist church is the reason that you go to Sunday school. And remember, in the old Baptist church, and particularly in the black Baptist church, you're expected to be biblically literate because you cannot receive the right hand of fellowship which follows baptism without passing the trustees of the deacons questions. If you are born to a Jewish family and you are, let's say, of the Hasidic background, you cannot pass into pass the, the the line, if you will, of accountability until you have met the requirements. If you're a male of bar mitzvah 
or you met the requirements if you're a female of bat mitzvah. And what are the requirements? That you had to know the Torah, that you had to know the Pentateuch. And you would be questioned. Then you would pass, and there would be a banquet in your honor. It's now moving from childhood of no accountability to across the, the Rubicon, if you will, of being accountable. Same thing is true in the Baptist church. You could not receive first communion until you demonstrated that you meet the requirements. In the United Methodist Church, you have to go through training. Most times it's between eight and 12 weeks of training. And then you're baptized. And before you're baptized, there will be a period where you are, you have to pass and indicate that you're biblically literate. Now, when you look down each side, many churches do not require that. And the question is, do you know whether person sitting next to you is biblically literate. Now, what does biblically literate mean? (laughs) Well, in the New Testament, you see the phrase, the word of God. Does that mean one word? And the answer is no. It means all of the words of God (laughs) from Genesis to the end of Revelation. And if you're biblically literate, then when somebody asks you, do you understand the word of God? Your answer should be easily, yes. If you're not, and you say yes, which of the Ten Commandments have you broken? (laughs) (laughs) The one that says thou shalt not lie. But the the reality is that if you know the word of God, then you almost automatically have opened the door to the power of the Holy Spirit. (coughs) Because the Bible teaches us that knowing the word of God, whenever you need to use it, one of the Holy Spirit's tasks is to make the word of God that you know, but you may not be able to call it up at that moment, available to you. If those of you remember that Jesus was sent from the moment of his baptism to the desert and went for 40 days without food and water and was then tempted, how did he defend himself from temptation? Use the word of God. What are we supposed to do? The word of God. Uh, are we supposed to do the, the same, same thing? thing. Mm-hmm. So the word of knowing the word of God 
It's yeah. not something that's capricious. Oh, well, you know, I, I, I do that just because it makes me look good. No, you don't. You do that because you want to be saved and help somebody else to be saved. <laughs> Amen. Looking good has nothing to do with salvation Amen. and helping somebody who needs to be helped. Amen. Marie, you have any last John, questions? I, John, I don't have any last questions. Um, like I said, it's just been um, a wonderful hour that I can't think of a better way to have spent this time. So I appreciate your time today and everything you shared with us. Uh, and, you know, Diane had texted and said that you were a seasoned spiritual scholar <laughs> and that that is so true and I, I really appreciate the time that you've shared with us to talk about your life story and share some lessons with us. Well, you're more than welcome and I thank you for having me on. All right. Oh, thank you, John, and um, it's like Marie, I probably have to go listen to this. You uh, <laughs> We gonna call you Uncle Cousin. Our our Uncle Elder. (laughs) Elder Uncle Cousin. (laughs) So Elder Uncle Cousin John, we are grateful. We are honored. We are blessed. We are full. You have filled our cups. Well, all praise. They run us over. They run the Holy Spirit. Thank you so much for pouring out your knowledge. Hallelujah. Yes. I agree strongly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, God bless you both, uh, my dear cousin Marie and my, well. my you elder uncle care. cousin, John. You Marie. too. Thanks Bye-bye. a lot. You're welcome.